G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. So over the last several years here at Good News, um, at about this time of year actually, we've journeyed into the wild lands of 1 Corinthians. Um, over several years now, we've taken it in several chunks. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, or one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. And this year, God willing, we're going to finish it off. Um, so here from chapter 11 through to chapter 16, God willing, in about eight weeks' time, we'll be able to finish it off. Uh, but our approach, slicing it up this way over several years, has meant that... that um, uh, Gosh, we've started at a weird point. <laughs> Recommenced our series at a weird point this year. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16 especially. What a thoroughly unusual, uh, quirky passage to our modern ears, isn't it? I think that's put, In fact, that's probably putting it too mildly. It's not just quirky or unusual. Troubling for some of us. Um, distressing even. For a few of us, I suspect. Um, Let me say, we're going to get to those verses and words and teachings um, shortly, but that's not where we need to start. Let me flash back, if we could, to a sermon from a few weeks ago. Uh, You might remember a few weeks ago, James preached to us on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, That's the week, Pentecost Sunday, where we remember the coming of the Holy Spirit of God on all of God's people there on the um, on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost following Christ's resurrection. So James preached to us, do you remember, from Galatians and the Holy Spirit's role in the Christian life. Uh, but we, we read in our Bible readings on that day, do you recall, from Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon, at least that we have recorded, the Christian uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem there by Peter. Now, I want to test you with something. Do you remember, here we go, ooh, this is a test for the memory, do you remember the big Old Testament passage that Acts chapter 2 was quoting from back those weeks ago when James preached to us from Galatians, but our Bible reading was Acts chapter 2. Do you remember? No. Oh, well. It was Joel chapter 2. Someone said it, I think. Uh, The Old Testament text that Peter used in that first Christian sermon, Peter claimed that, that this very prophecy was fulfilled, was coming true right before their very eyes there on Pentecost Sunday. In our day, the coming of, of the Spirit of God um, unfolding right in front of us, fellow Israelites, coming on each believer gathered in Jerusalem on this momentous day. And that passage the, the, the big scripture that Peter saw unfolding was Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. And Peter says, this is the experience that God's people all down the ages have been looking forward to, have been hoping for, have been yearning for, have been hoping will come true from our faithful God, have wished would one day come. And it's finally here, O people of God, on Pentecost Sunday way back then. All down through history, we have longed for a day when God would come amongst his people, pour himself amongst his people. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Alex read it to us a moment ago. It's the prophecy where God promises, Joel 2, 28. 
And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's interesting, isn't it? And daughters. Then verse 29, a bit further on down. Even on my servant servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and billows of smoke, all this symbolic kind of language. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so for Peter, do you see, on that occasion, that day of the Lord began with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That day of the Lord that was promised took root as the Spirit of the Lord was poured out on all of the believers there, men and women, uh, to repentance and faith in Jesus right there at the beginning of Acts and the birth of the Christian church. And that day of the Lord continues to march onward even now as the sons and daughters of God prophesy the saving name of Jesus uh, to all whom God will call. So we live right now in the day of the Lord, where men and women together must speak God's saving word, call the world to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing back in Acts chapter 2. Men and women speaking the saving word of the Lord. That is what they were doing when they met for church in Corinth, week by week, or however it was week by week in their case. Uh, It's what we do as we meet this very morning in the day of the Lord. But there's this one little extra feature of Joel's prophecy. It actually comes up twice in that prophecy by Joel that I don't want us to skip over. So just cast your eyes back there, if you would please, on the screen or in your Bible, if you're really quick at flicking there. Just go back one verse to Joel chapter 2, verse 27, which says this, Then you will know... God speaking, then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Here it comes. Never again will my people be shamed. Never again will my people be shamed. So Joel 2 promises an era where men and women together, sons and daughters together will prophesy Sons and daughters alike will share the Spirit of God, enjoy a shared unity in the Lord and will know the name that will save them from God's terrible judgment in his tender mercy toward them through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that day will be a day where shame should have no place among the people of the Lord. A day where shame has been taken away. So just hold that thought, please, as we... Pray now and turn to 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice that the day of the Lord has come and that the day of the Lord is now and that the day of the Lord is still to come at the return of Christ. And Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning right now to discern carefully what your word is and is not saying, what your word is and is not teaching us about how to live between the day of the Lord and in the day of the Lord. Father, there are parts of your word that are harder to understand than others, 
that address sensitive and important areas of life and our sense of identity and experience and our relationships together. So God, please give me clarity of speech. Give us all clarity of mind. Give us calm and quiet before your word. And give us the comfort, please, of hearing all of your instructions to us, all of your words to us in the context of your great saving word, the gospel of Christ. So work by your spirit amongst us today, please. Amen. So why on earth would we finish a series last year on 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 10 knowing full well that we were going to have to start a series, (laughs) restart a series on Corinthians, beginning with this passage. Why would we do that knowing full well? I knew full well when we finished at chapter 10 last year that we were going to have to commence at chapter 11 right here. It's quite simply because chapter 11 marks one of the big turning points in in Paul's entire letter to the Corinthians. So here was chapters 8 to 10. Do you remember? It was all questions like this. Should Christians um, feel free to knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols? Do you remember that? Chapters 8 to 10. Do you recall those arguments and discussions that we had back then? Should Christians feel free to knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols? Should Christians deliberately take part in feasts that everyone knows are part of a ritual to a false god. Admittedly, a false god that Christians don't even believe exist, but could you eat food if you knew that the food was cooked there, do you see? And you can make your own mind up as to whether that has relevance to the events of Dark Mofo. I'm just describing what's in chapters 8 to 10, and again, if you'd like to talk about that, let's do that afterwards, or you can go back and listen to the sermons on the website. Um, I don't think the answer's obvious either way, incidentally. But Paul does know this, and he concludes chapter 10 by laying down a law, laying down a rule. He brings out a yardstick for every Christian life. Have you measured yourself against this yardstick recently? Every Christian, everywhere, in every age, ought to live by... Here's how he concludes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31... So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. So let me ask you today, Christian, has the gospel of Jesus so gripped your life that you are not just content, but that you desire and you want and you long to live by these two rules, the glory of God and the good of many that they may be saved? That's kind of the point in the argument that we're up to in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Will you submit everything you do, and I mean everything, whether whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, who you do it with, 
where you go and why you go there. I will do it all in this self-conscious pursuit of the glory of God in this world and the good of many that they may be saved. The glory of my God who has rescued me, me, through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the good of many that they may be saved through the same glorious gospel. Now, chapter 11, do you see, without losing focus, Paul then turns from the idolatrous world out there and make sure you've got the glory of God and the good of many that they may be saved in mind out there in that idolatrous world. Paul now maintains that focus, but he turns with that yardstick in hand to their church life for the Corinthians and says, how does your church life measure up to this? The glory of God and the good of mankind. Are you living for the glory of God and the good of your fellow human beings in church? Not just out there in the world, in church. And it seems that they're actually doing, in the main, pretty well. I mean, the coming five chapters will reveal they've got some issues to work on, as we all do. But chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. But, and that seems to be the spirit of the verses that come on, but there are some things that we need to talk about. Uh, Would a fly on the wall of your church, O Corinthians, would a fly on the wall of your church or in your Sunday school or indeed in your crèche or any of the programs you do through the week, would a fly on the wall of your church really know that you live and die for the glory of God and the salvation of many? Because, Paul is about to say, I'm not sure that that is the glory that would stick out if I were a fly on the wall in your meetings. I'm not sure that the honour of God is the thing that people would necessarily be talking about as they make their way home, as they walk home along the street from your church meetings, O Corinthians. In fact, the glory and honour, or should I say the dishonour and shame that everyone would be talking about, is focused somewhere else in particular. Uh, So enter with me, would you please, brothers and sisters, into the weird and wonderful world of first century Greco-Roman headdress. We're going to have to dive into this now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Let's start there, down at verse 13. Have you got it there? Where Paul asks them, judge for yourselves. In other words, you, you know the answer. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He expected them to know the answer to that question, to agree with him to the answer to that question. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Or down at verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, What can we see? Step one, we have to be able to see there was a universal practice in their day um, and historians tell us it wasn't just a practice in church, it was in various social settings with a whole bunch of um, what was proper sort of surrounding it. There was uh, a universal practice in their day where it was the proper thing in a variety of social settings for a woman to wear some kind of head covering. And let me tell you, uh, the, the historians, the, the reconstructions as to what the cover was 
or whether or not it was sewn onto the rest of the clothing, or indeed exactly what it covers. Does it cover um, the, just the hair, or is it like a veil thing? Does it obscure the face, um, or how much does it cover? All of that they toss back and forth. But should a woman wear a head covering culturally appropriately in social, certain social settings? Oh, no one's debating that in terms of the first century culture. And in fact, you Corinthians know that, don't you? Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? But wait a second. Step two, when I say no one's debating that, well, the Corinthians were evidently debating that, weren't they? Um, the Corinthians, can, can you think of an equivalent today, were pushing the boundaries quite evidently from this passage in front of us, testing the waters of these universally accepted social practices in their day that everyone knew, that everyone understood, that everyone knew they were supposed to be uh, playing by, and hence this very passage. Now, you might wonder, why would they do that? Why would these Corinthians want to be at the cutting edge of stretching the boundaries of this social practice? Well, I think there are some hints in the passage. I can't prove it to you, but I suspect... It's because they had grasped very firmly and very clearly what Paul has said actually across his writings. He said it back in chapter 7 and he goes on to say it in just a moment here that in every respect that matters, men and women are peers before the Lord. I think they had grasped that and they were trying to figure out how that should find expression within their cultural setting. So, as Paul says, for instance, in another one of his letters in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen to that, the Corinthians were thinking. And surely that should find expression in their headdress when we meet together in church. And hence, uh, in a similar vein, verses 11 and 12 here in Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians, have a look there with me, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Paul seems to be agreeing with them on that very principle right here. Verse 11, in the Lord, that's a very important phrase, by the way, you won't see this equality in the rest of your life, out in the rest of the social settings, but yes, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Do you see the reciprocity there? For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Well, back in chapter 7, Paul spoke of the way that a husband's body belongs to the wife just as much as the wife's body belongs to the man. Revolutionary thought in their time that a woman had an equal claim. In the Lord, here's the truth. You are equal. So please don't misunderstand his teaching, Paul's teaching here to the Corinthians about culturally acceptable headdress as somehow undermining that baseline equality before the Lord. In the Lord you are peers. In the Lord indeed you depend on one another. Uh, there is no first place. Your very self comes from the Lord himself. Who you are comes from the Lord. Your identity comes from the Lord. You see all that. And so, could that be their motivation, the Corinthians' motivation, for throwing off their head covering? 
in a sense, asserting their equality. If we are equal, then can't we do the same with our heads? And Paul basically says, folks, your equality is not the message that you are sending when you pray or prophesy with your heads uncovered. You need to understand the cultural setting that you're in. That's not the message that you are sending when you pray or prophesy with your hat off or your veil removed or whatever it was. People aren't hearing, in other words, people aren't hearing, look at us, we're equal. That's not what they're hearing at all or what they're thinking. No one is going to interpret your unadorned head as an emblem of your glorious equality with your husband and that's because culturally an unadorned head already has a very powerful symbolic connotation sends a very powerful message and it has nothing to do with your standing before the Lord. Get this, no one is thinking about the Lord, his glory and his goodness when you shun the cultural norm and pray or prophesy with your head uncovered. Do you see why it's a matter worth addressing now for Paul? No one is thinking about the glory of the Lord when you are shirking this or challenging this cultural norm. Uh, So what are they thinking about then? If someone comes in amongst, a fly on the wall, watches the Corinthian church, what are they thinking about as they see uh, the ladies removing their head head coverings or not donning the appropriate headdress? That's verse 4. Let's pick it up from verse 3 though. Verse 3. Paul says, now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man or the head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. We'll come back to that verse in a few moments. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, that is to say dishonours Christ. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, her head as in her husband, you see. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, that is her husband. And please note, it seems pretty obvious to me, I know you're probably coming to this passage cold, Uh, this is a, a detail worth chasing down later, it seems pretty obvious to me that Paul is talking to wives rather than women in general throughout this passage because he consistently speaks of her man uh, singular or her head singular. Paul's concern is the cultural impact of a wife's headdress on her husband, not that she is somehow shaming all men, do you see, or men generally. You just have to chase that through in the details. We won't do that now, but I'm going to take that as read. So get this, whether a wife wears her headdress appropriately or not in that culture sent a powerful signal of either glory or shame on her husband, which sounds so weird to us, doesn't it? How does that even work? That is so foreign to our way of thinking about our clothing and our attire and even, in some ways, our identity with our spouse. And Paul ends verse 5 with this. He says, if you're not wearing the appropriate headdress, it's just as though her head were shaved. 
which, unless I'm mistaken, is an illustration that was also culturally understood in their setting about what you should and shouldn't do with your hair. A shaved head on a woman in that culture would bring shame on her personally, whereas an improperly adorned head would bring shame on her husband. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, right, not to his head, to Christ, is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, right, not her husband's glory, but hers, for long hair is given her as a covering. So, wear your headdress, lest you bring shame on your husband, just like you keep your hair the right length, lest you bring shame on yourself. That's Paul's advice. That's Paul's instruction. That's Paul's direction. When you are gathered, in view of your cultural setting, and indeed the cultural setting across the Mediterranean at the time, our standards and the symbolic meaning of our actions and our attire, when you are gathered, in view of our culture, and in order to keep the glory of God and the good of others at the forefront of church life, there's our yardstick, please do like every other church does put, and don't put your husband to shame with a socially out there spectacle. Wear your headdress. Don't create waves in that way. And by the way, husbands, don't you cause a kerfuffle in the other direction by donning headdress to be like your wives. But wait a second, there's, there's something that we need to ask, isn't there? Isn't there one last critical, I think desperately important question that we need to ask of this passage? It runs something like this. Why doesn't Paul tell these women... Sisters, you are peers with these men. You know it and I know it. I've been teaching about it for ages. So, sisters, stand up, won't you? Take that headdress off. Put yourself in the firing line. I ask something of you that is daring and that is risky. I know that you will suffer for it, that you'll be looked down on. But stand, sisters. For the sake of the women of future generations who will thank you for your courage and for changing their world. To put it another way, the sexist status quo ends with us. Why doesn't Paul say that? Were you wondering that as we were going through? Well, to that, may I just note three things, actually. Two of them very quickly. The third one will take me a little longer to say. Firstly... Um, He doesn't say that because I don't think Paul sees this particular cultural practice as intrinsically sexist, so much as it just requires different things from the different sexes, do you see? Uh, It's not that it necessarily rates one as inferior and the other as superior. I don't think that's intrinsic to the symbol in Paul's mind. The symbol itself isn't sexist and so Paul doesn't feel a need to rail against it. Um, Some folks mistakenly take this passage to be dissuading women from prayer and prophecy as if in some way they're not worthy, according to Paul or the Bible, to be involved in prayer and and prophecy. 
Um, But I don't think it's saying that at all, is it? And I don't think Paul would stand for that. Rather, Paul is assuming that the women in Corinth are praying and prophesying in their meeting and every woman who prays or prophesies, well, let me give you guidelines on how to do that. The only question for Paul is, how can we make sure that the one that we pray to and the one about whom we prophesy remains the main thing, remains the main focus? So firstly, I, don't, I think Paul sees it as not intrinsically sexist, so he doesn't need to rail against it. Secondly, Paul uses this language of head. We need to come back to this verse, don't we? Paul uses this language of head, the head of every man is Christ, this is verse 3, and the head of the woman is man, or the head of the wife is her man, and the head of Christ is God. And I presume he uses that language of headship in particular because of the particular part of the body that is on view with the headdress. Uh, He makes, in other words, a very deliberate wordplay, kind of like a pun, um, which I mentioned just to say, we need to tread very carefully before importing our ideas of what it is to be the head into Paul's text here. Because Paul actually tells us what he has in mind. Thirdly and lastly here, Paul spells out what headship does mean here, and it doesn't necessarily mean what you assume it might. And he won't stand it for meaning inferiority, as we've seen, or lower standing, or diminished identity, or worth in the Lord, or anything like that. So what exactly is the meaning of a head in this context? I think he's simply saying this, that contrary... uh, Actually, let's read the verse. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man or the head of wife, the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So what, is exact, what exactly is he saying? I think he's simply saying, contrary to our today modern definitions of marriage, that there is something sown into God's original design of marriage itself that takes account of the unique shape, the unique coupling of a man with a woman, the two sexes, whereby the woman, the wife, is or brings glory to her husband and he is her head in a way that is not entirely reciprocal or entirely interchangeable, entirely symmetrical. Now, does this undermine our equality before the Lord to say it's not entirely reciprocal between the sexes or not entirely symmetrical? Does this undermine our equality before the Lord? Not a bit. It does say that we're different, though. And by the way, I'm not convinced that this has any bearing whatsoever on men and women outside of marriage. So, of how I relate to your wife or indeed how she relates to any other man. I think what's on view here is the marriage relationship and that peculiar coupling and God's design for the sexes in that. But when you put two people together in marriage, they enter a dance, biblically, whose steps have been spelled out by God as to how they work together, how they are to work together. How does Paul put it? Verse 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So, speaking to men and women. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Verse 3. Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Down at verse 8. Uh, marriage between a man and a woman has always had this story sewn into it since the days of Adam and Eve, verse 8. For man did not come from woman, remember, Adam created from the dust of the ground, but woman from man, Eve created from the rib of Adam. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Do you remember in the language of Genesis It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, For this reason and because of the angels, whatever that bit means, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. That is, let her wear the normal cultural head covering because of of all the people in her husband's life, A man's bride, a husband's wife, his delight and his glory in this world, the one whose splendour reflects back on him alone in some ways, were she to heap shame on him culturally, socially, how heavy a blow that would be. Do you see? She is the one who rather, but she is the one who meets him in his aloneness. She is the one who binds herself to him as he forges ahead away from the household of his mother and father, leaves his father and mother. Do you remember how uh, Genesis puts it? Notice how the initiative, can I say headship, rests with the man in the Genesis story, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Is that the, the headship that Paul has in mind? So do all you can to so order your church life, not to sustain a sexist status quo, but most certainly to nurture the dance between a husband and his bride, between a wife and her man. So, as we move towards a conclusion, so, how do we put this together? What is church about? As we hold the yardstick of our conduct from out there in the world, the glory of God and the good of man, as we bring that across to our church life, what is church about? It's not about your glory, Christian. It's not about her glory. It's not about his glory. It's certainly it's not about the glory of men. It's not about the glory of women. That's not what church is about. To use the language of Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the story of church ought to be the story 
of being done with shame, being done with ways of being that bring shame on one another. The story of church ought to be one of realising that all the shame, our shame, has been taken away. Is that the story of our church? Of our church life together? Of our life before the Lord? That you are done with shame and that you're done with shaming others Do it all for the glory of God and the good of many that they may be saved. Now, uh, in terms of teasing out details, I'm sure there there may be many, many lessons for us in terms of how this should be uh, teased out. Um, uh, But I feel like I've kind of spoken long enough and maybe we need need to tease it out in conversation over cups of tea. Um, There may be lessons here about how we use our words when we have a chance when we have a chance to drag someone else's name through the mud? Are we going to be the church that does that as we relate together? There may be lessons for us here, um, uh, indeed, about dealing with very shameful things, indeed, because I'm not talking about hushing up or covering up gross evil. We should talk about that. There's a place to talk about that. But I am just saying, I am just talking about choosing not to behave in a way that attracts shame in the first place or brings shame on others when they ought not to be shamed? Are there lessons here? I don't know. It comes down to real detail, doesn't it? Are there lessons here for husbands and wives? Uh, Perhaps the shoe's on the other foot in some ways. Perhaps the husband who needs to recognise the shame that he brings on his wife when he has too big a night out on Saturday night and so the wife has to bring the kids to church and everyone kind of knows it. See what I mean? It's the, the way that we accrue shame in our culture may be very different to the way back then, but we have to tease this out in detail and reflect the fact that our shame has been carried by Christ and so we glorify our great God and seek the good of many that they may be saved. Many, many lessons, but how about we just pray together now? And may I say, if you would like to tease some more of this out or argue... I don't don't mean that negatively, Um, uh, push around some of these verses with me afterwards, please come and do that. That would be a conversation worth having. Seek me out. Let's have that conversation. Let's pray. Our great and glorious Father in heaven, we are so immensely thankful that you have not paraded our shames and our sins before the world. But Christ bore our shame on the cross. And so we, your spirit-washed people, are clean in your sight and we are done with shame before you. What a bright and clear and glorious reality we stand in before you, thanks to Jesus. Father God, where there lies within our hearts a desire to put personal agendas ahead of the glory of Jesus especially here at church, but not only here at church, where we would love to cling to past hurts and disappointments and grudges that we might one day shame others who have hurt us or or just assert ourselves or even pursue good causes, but without regard for who or how we might hurt others along the way. God, may we learn to put your glory first and the healing, cleansing glory of Jesus into practice in how we treat the people around us. Father, any of us here today who have things in our past that still weigh on us, 
with a sense, with an immense sense of shame and regret. Lord, may we see in the cross of Christ your commitment to carry our shame and take it away. And Father, may we therefore carry ourselves with integrity and love as we perhaps try to sort out how to resolve or repair or confront or confess whatever it might be that needs to be done, that the glory of your name might shine so brightly amongst us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.